Well, hello, and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast, powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso, here with Alex Dykes. Alex, we have big news from the world of EVs and Auto Buyer's Guide. Tell us all about it. We do. EV trucks, specifically. Uh, all of a sudden, after having no idea when the Rivian that we ordered, what is this now, three, four years ago, whatever this has been, all of a sudden has actually popped out. There is a VIN number, it exists, it is green, and uh, supposedly it will be shipped to the local delivery center soon, whatever that soon definition means. And uh, interestingly, the Ford Lightning was also finally assembled. Uh, it originally had a build date in May. It ended up getting built about two weeks late, uh, but it is uh, moved to a shipped status as well. Supposedly it'll be at the dealer between June 28th and July 6th, which is a big window. And now the race is on. I'm, I'm kind of curious as to which truck will actually arrive first. Um, and now I have a decision to make, which truck do I actually buy or do I buy them both for a short while and then decide and get rid of them? So I don't know. That is a, uh, a question that it remains unanswered. So be sure and subscribe and find out what we actually do. This will be exciting because, quite frankly, I'm as excited to know what you get selling it used in a mm -hmm. hot market as I am to know anything else about the test. The market aspect is just as interesting as the road test. Yeah, so here's a good question. So, so Tim, bearing in mind that I'm, get, I'm assuming you haven't driven the Lightning yet. I've driven in the Lightning. I haven't okay. driven it firsthand. Uh, which would you keep, the Rivian or the Lightning? Which one speaks to you more? Well, first of all, the... The Lightning's a real truck in every sense, and oddly, there doesn't seem to be any penalty for be it being larger and body on frame. It is more efficient than the Rivian. It is lighter than the Rivian. Uh, according to some of the early tests, it's also a lot quicker than claimed. Not Rivian quick, mm -hmm. but damn quick. I would probably be all about the Ford because if nothing else, Ford knows how to screw together a truck and support it long-term. And this is a legacy industry where long-term parts and service support matters. I would also say that if I ever have any inkling of using it as a truck, there are going to be a lot more F-150 accessories available, no matter how mm -hmm. many fold-out kitchens Rivian provides. Yeah, it's kind of, there's they're definitely different markets. You know, Rivian's trying to go after the, the off-roader with the four-motor setup, because the only ones available now are four motors. Yeah. So in some respects, it's not the most appropriate comparison. I mean, obviously, one's midsize, one's full-size, one has two motors, one has four motors. Um, and of course, the Rivian has the air suspension and all that other jazz that goes with it at the moment. So it's sort of like, um, best way to think of it is like the uh, off-roady Grand Cherokee pickup truck. If, if the Rivian had been a Jeep, would not have surprised me at all. Let me put it that way. Um, but, uh, you know, they both have front trunks. They're both about the same kind of range, about the same kind of battery capacity. So it's going to be an interesting choice between these two vehicles. Now, on the sales side, I think the big reason that I said yes to the Rivian, and I think we're going to accept it as far as delivery goes, is because right now, Rivians on Bring a Trailer and all these other uh, auction places seem to be going for over $100,000. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I've seen, too. I suspect there will be a lot of demand for the Ford, but I also think the Ford will be better matched to customer demand. Right mm -hmm. now, I see a Rivian on the road, and I did see one the other day. I lost my crap. I mean, they're just, you don't expect to see them. You don't expect deliveries. Yeah. You don't expect that delivery dates are going to be met. Seeing one seems exotic, and I'm sure I could miss the lightning in traffic. It would look like most other F-150s. True, true. If and I Rivian is cool looking. It is cool looking. I, I will say this. In the front war, uh, big win for Ford. The liftover in the yes. Rivian is huge. The liftover in the Ford is no higher than the bumper. Yeah, I'm going to be intrigued to see how that holds up over time, but the design of that whole clamshell thing coming down and and uh, and the grill section basically lifting out, that was pure genius. And the, the size of the cargo area is also larger, obviously, because it's it's a bigger truck, so it's not too surprising. Um, you know, the Rivian does appear to be a little bit more refined here and there, but it doesn't really charge any faster, so there's no real advantage on the uh, actual functional EV side of things. Now, price is a factor here. Did you get your order in before the price hike? I did, because I was one of the first few thousand 
uh, orders. But based on their delivery tracking, it looks like I am truly actually in the first 4,000 orders for the R1T, maybe even a little bit less than that. But I know that that's, that's where I had been told my position was uh, yeah, about a year ago, was that I was in the first 4,000. Um, also seemingly within the first few thousand Lightning pre-orders, although that pre-order was years later. Um, so I do get the lower original price tag on the R1T. Uh, it is, oddly enough, almost exactly the same price as the Lightning. The Lightning ends up a little bit more expensive because we ordered a, a uh, Lariat uh, uh, yeah, Lariat trim with a few options here and there, the Max Toe and Max Payload package. So it's just under 80000 The Ruby's going to be about 75000 So very, very close in terms of price tag. Um, the one thing we don't know yet is whether or not my local dealer is going to screw me over with the uh, dealer markup. So the market adjustment. Yeah. So I was about to say, since the seventy odd thousand dollar Rivian R1T is dead, you're really going to have to test it as a much more expensive truck because no one else will be able to obtain the price that you got with your early yep. order. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm honestly surprised Rivian did that. I think I think that had they had better marketing around their price increase and it wasn't such a surprise, I think it would have all gone better for them and they could have raised the price more. I think if they'd had a tiered thing and they said, okay, well, you know, the very first few orders are going to get this, the next few orders are going to get that. We're really, really sorry. And they had pushed it out earlier and said, you know, explained it, said that it was coming, you know, approximate prices, had a waiting period, then done it. I think they could have gotten away with, with raising the price tag on a lot of orders, but they bungled that one. But on the other side, uh, you know, apparently Frontier Ford in the Bay Area, where my order has somehow gotten reshuffled to, uh, the order was originally placed with one dealer. Here's the problem with dealer networks. Originally placed with one dealer, that dealer, uh, the dealer principal sold the dealer to apparently a conglomerate that owns a neighboring dealer. Now, all of a sudden, my order is now with Frontier Ford, not Fremont Ford, totally different city as well. Um, and uh, the rumor mill, according to the Mach-E forums, is that they're charging $10,000 markups on Mach-E's. So why would the Lightning be different? Yeah, this is why Ford is now talking about trialing a one-price online purchase scheme. It's, it's specifically for stuff like this to try to prevent huge market adjustments that is mm -hmm. gouging by dealers. Because the idea is you still take delivery through the dealer and the services through the dealer, but the purchase is online at a set price through Ford. I think this is what they have in mind with that scheme. Yeah, I'm going to be intrigued to see if they can get away with it. Um, I mean, if they can, I honestly, I would love it. But uh, I, I have doubts as to whether they'll functionally be able to make that work or whether it will end up being along the lines of Saturn where, you know, there was theoretically the fixed price and usually it was fixed, but there were dealers that would sell under or over, et cetera, because you really can't control what dealers actually do. I really do think that one other facet of this test, if you do get both trucks, you need to drive the Rivian in a city and drive the Ford in a city because a lot of people are going to be buying these things. Let's face it. Most people who buy trucks buy them for a combination of utility and lifestyle. And the Rivian in particular is heavy on the lifestyle side. So seeing if it doesn't have an efficiency advantage or a weight advantage, but its size might give it an advantage inside of San Francisco, inside of Fremont and urban areas where the Ford, which is a full size truck, might actually fall on its face. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so those are both interesting cars. Uh, we don't know anything about their quality yet. We just know <laughs> that there's a high level of appeal and relevance. We are now going to talk about cars that have very marginal relevance, but a lot of appeal. So you see where I'm going with this. We're counting objectively mediocre cars that we love anyway. Alex, lead off. What have you got? Uh, so I actually decided to just go with your list here and, and think about these. So you had the Jaguar I-Pace on there. Um, and I have to agree with you on that one. I think the I-Pace is a solid EV that really, it blows my mind how it has performed so poorly in the market. Yeah. I mean, here's, here's the thing. If you want absolute range and efficiency, you probably want some sort of Tesla, mm -hmm. but let's be honest. A lot of people also buy electric cars because of the performance aspect. And that's one thing this Jaguar has in spades. It mm -hmm. is 
very quick at about 4.3 seconds to 60. It's got 500 pound-feet of torque, almost 400 horsepower, all-wheel drive. It's low enough that you could almost pass it off as a tall wagon rather than a truck. And mm -hmm. as long as you don't need to go more than, let's say, a real-world 200 miles, you're probably never going to run into a situation where this doesn't meet the needs of someone who would otherwise cross shop, I don't know, a top-end Lexus RX. There's now only one model, the HSE, mm -hmm. and basically only one price. And Jaguar yeah. Land Rover, of course, is still eligible for the full federal tax credit. I understand that there are some concerns about quality with British cars, especially when the entirety of the car is electric, and that's traditionally been the worst part of British cars. But here we are now, but three years later, and there haven't been many horror stories. Yeah. And the I-Pace is just emblematic of, of you know, the question marks surrounding Jaguar. Why don't they sell better? It, it's so odd. You know, for, for viewers that, that take a look now, and I, I've seen a decent number of reviews done in 2021, 2020, when Jaguar had tweaked things here or there with the I-Pace complaining about how it wasn't relevant and it wasn't as good as the Model Y, etc. You know, for, for a vehicle that was designed by a traditional car manufacturer with a traditional auto manufacturer life cycle, the I-Pace started development in 2012 when we had a Nissan Leaf and we had just received a Tesla Model S. And Jaguar conceived of a compact luxury uh, crossover with off-road ability and air suspension on it, etc. And then it launched in 2018, right around the same time, just, just after the Tesla Model X launched. And at the time, the only things you could buy with a plug were a Leaf, an I-Pace, a Model X, and a Model S, and none of these things were like one another. But for some reason, every comparison out there was like, oh, well, you know, the I-Pace is too small compared to the Model X. Well, no shit, Sherlock. It's a compact crossover. It's not a three-row. It's not the same thing. And it, it landed in the hottest luxury segment. The compact luxury crossover segment is the hottest segment in the luxury group there. Um, and somehow it failed to perform. And Jaguar stumbled here and there, and they they initially wanted to derate the range because they wanted it to be more realistic, and so they took a voluntary reduction, which was mind-blowingly stupid. And uh, Tesla chose the exact opposite and really stretched that range out to unrealistic numbers. Um, and then Jaguar then had some updates in here and there that added 20 miles of range and added 30 miles of range, and then they didn't bother to rerun the EPA tests, so the window sticker still had the old range on it. So it's a very odd group of decisions. Yeah, and here's the thing. There's a lot that's appealing about it because unlike a lot of first-generation EVs from European luxury priors, we'll call them legacy automakers, you know, you look at what Mercedes did. You look at what Audi did with the e-tron. Uh, you mm -hmm. look at some tentative early steps. They really didn't design a vehicle that was an EV from the ground up that maximized the packaging potential of an EV. The, the I-PACE was designed as an EV from the ground up, which means interior volume is maximized within the 117-inch mm -hmm. wheelbase. It's only 184 inches long, but it has the interior volume of a much larger vehicle. Aesthetically, the wheels are pushed out to the edge, but that also pays benefits in usable interior space. Uh, plus, on top of all that, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'll never understand how Jaguar SUVs struggle while the Land Rover side of the same house remains... Yeah relatively successful. And I almost wonder if maybe that wasn't part of the problem. I mean, Jaguar spent so many years saying, you know, we do build SUVs. They're called Land Rovers. They're over there. And they were always in the same dealer in the United States. So it was always a combined thing. You know, literally there was Jaguar over here in the showroom and then there was Land Rover over there. And, you know, you want the SUV? It's right over there. Um, and then they decide that they need to make uh, an SUV and now a whole bunch of SUVs. And I don't know if that's helped Jaguar necessarily at all as they've lost the focus on the bread and butter, the sedans. Um, but, you know, they have fewer sedans than ever. Now the XJ is gone. The XE is gone. All we have is an XF. Uh, it's kind of sad. You know, I still want to still want a classically designed Jag. If they had just given me, you know, a Jaguar that looked like the, you know, the the 2005, 2006 Jaguar XJ that happened to be electric, I might have bought one. Yeah, and it did probably it, it probably gestated for too long for a concept that started in 2012. I think we first saw it in 2014. I want to say at the L.A. Auto Show. Mm -hmm. By the time it hit the market, we were on the cusp of the launch of the Model Y. The market was more intense. Uh, there were more alternatives. Um, and, and frankly, Tesla was just stronger in the market. You got to realize yeah. that if 
iPACE had come out in like 2014 when we first saw the design, it would have been remembered as a revelation. That was before Tesla had any meaningful SUV presence. It really would have been a segment creator and a breakthrough product. It just showed up too late. And people, you know, they look at the range. They look at things like the 100 kilowatt hour charge rate, which is too mm -hmm. low. Uh, I wonder if that's a big factor, too, because, I mean, yeah. at the time we didn't have electrify when that was conceived, we didn't have electrify America because the diesel emission scandal hadn't been finalized. So we didn't have anything other than, you know, the really low KW chargers in urban areas. There was no ability to road trip your I-PACE initially. But even after it started getting better, sales just never picked up. Yeah, I would say that the best customer for the iPACE, it's going to be Google in the end. It's going to be the deal to buy 20,000 of these things, which blows my mind when I consider how many iPACEs they actually sell to retail customers. Mm -hmm. And I would also say this, for EV people who are like specifically into electric vehicles, the efficiency rate is a huge turnoff. Real world range is probably at or just below 200 miles. And it gets about 2.3 miles per kilowatt hour, mm -hmm. which is objectively just awful like that's as bad as anything out there so it's not a great yeah. in that standpoint it's a performance ev yeah it was pretty early on and then jaguar has not done much to redesign the drivetrain since it launched because of the low sales it doesn't sell anywhere well it doesn't sell in europe it doesn't sell in china well etc so there just hasn't been the cash there um you know i'm not clear what's going on inside the jlr envelope but there's definitely a cash crunch you know visibly a cash crunch from from this end um, and it seems to be harming jaguar far more than land rover yeah i think jaguar as a purveyor of suvs hasn't worked they've given up on a lot of, i mean this is a topic for a different show like wither jaguar like within mm -hmm. the jl you know yeah land rover combination um look, yeah, honestly Honestly, if only Geely had bought them with Volvo, they might have been in a better spot. Yeah, but I mean, even then, Polestar wants to get into electric SUVs, and I, I have a feeling that they're going to be a juggernaut, at least um, within the scope of reason, compared to Jaguar, which has just been bleeding mm -hmm. volume and dealers and customers for what seems like 30 years. I don't know what the future looks like, but I had thought the I-PACE would be a turning point for the brand. You know, I thought maybe they get a reset in the era of EVs. And I think the iPACE's performance has been proof that you can build an objectively good looking, fun to drive vehicle that's practical mm -hmm. for most people's needs and you can fall absolutely flat. Yeah, you can. Okay. True that. So proving that gas powered vehicles can also fall flat, the Alfa Romeo Giulia, and I'm going with the Quadrifoglio, obviously you can also get a four cylinder. When the QF came out, people thought this was as close as we'd ever get to a Ferrari sedan, and they weren't far off. But the popularity never measured up to the performance billing, and it had real reliability issues that were not, you know, were not placebo, yes. like real Italian car issues. Yeah, drive shafts popping off on the freeway, et cetera, not, not a good look. Um, but I agree. I love the Quadrifoglio. It is so much fun. It's fun. It's nicely sized. Maybe the ride is a little bit too stiff, but whatever. 500 horsepower, that's the price you pay. It's one of the few automatic-only cars where I've been through the whole experience of driving it and not left feeling mm -hmm. like, you know, it's been that much better with a stick shift. It's great the way it is. It yeah. makes great sounds. Six-cylinder engines are not renowned for their song. Mm -hmm. Alfa Romeo six-cylinder engines, even without Giuseppe. Sounds, Pinto. sounds great. Yeah, I mean, and it, it it's 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 more fun to drive than an M3 or an RS4 or you know a, a, a C-Class 63. I mean, it 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 has steering feel that the Germans just cannot match. The steering feel, the braking feel, everything is really well sorted. I mean, the engine makes fantastic sounds. The shift paddles are you know real magnesium paddles. They feel great, etc. It has a really terrible infotainment system, though. And I think that, sadly, there are a reasonable number of people that buy performance cars that don't ever really use the performance. It's more of a status symbol for some of them. And they're in that in that group, infotainment stuff and maybe reliability is more important. But for the joy of driving, it's worth the problems that it may that it well, not may the, the problems that will definitely occur when you own an Alpha. <laughs> mechanical electronic software issues like telematics compatibility mm -hmm. everything that can go wrong mostly does now i'll say this if you want 500 horsepower rear wheel drive 
and world-class steering feel, you will get it here. And they've been building it for a few years. So I'm going to optimistically hope that the worst is past, even something this niche. A few years of real-world experience yeah. generally sobers up the product. And you said the Germans can't match. I will say this. There is one German company that matches this level of steering feel, and that's Porsche. And normally I would not compare a four-door vehicle to something like a 918, but this really merits that comparison. Yeah, I would say that's true, but I would I think that the Julia feels better than a Panamera, which would be as close as you could rationally get. So, you know, a 911 is going to feel great, but it's also a rear engine car. So you'd hope the steering was a little better, a little bit lighter, you know, et cetera. Um, I would say the, for me, the Stelvio is probably where I would go because you get all the, all the Julia fun with honestly very little compromise and the addition of all wheel drive, which I really do like in that. Um, I wish that there was an all wheel drive disable button on the Stelvio, then I would pick it every day over the Julia. Um, but most days, as it is, I would probably take the Stelvio Quadrifolio. Yeah, I mean, th obviously, that is the winning bet. Anything crossover always trumps anything car in the marketplace these days. And it is more practical. A mm -hmm. Julia shooting brake would be the end of the world. From That would be fun. That would that be would... fun. A Julia shooting brake with all-wheel drive that you could disable the front axle whenever you wanted to, I'd take one of those. And with the Julia, I can honestly say it does not need any more power. Like, more power is always good in theory. But this vehicle is so visceral. It has the quality we normally associate mm -hmm. with purebred sports cars of feeling faster than it is. And it is objectively really fast. It runs yeah. quarter miles in the 11s. 3.6 seconds to 60 in the 90s. That meant a McLaren F1. This is a fast vehicle. It doesn't need more power. What it does need is perhaps a better balance of ride and handling because it is brutally stiff better marketing and just a track record of reliability like all of the early cars yeah. long-term test fleets were just disasters if you're alpha you need to just go back to motor trend car and driver whatever and just say here we're going to give you one to test for as long as you want we have confidence in this product at least get back to your enthusiast readers and let them know that the product is sound and will not let them down because the first yeah. impression was brutal yeah i i, I... I think budget is part of Alpha's problem. They obviously do not have that much money. Stellantis is rolling in dough, but they they only seem to allow the divisions that are making money to spend money. They don't they're not robbing from Peter to pay Paul within the corporate structure too much. So, you know, Ram and Jeep are making money hand over fist, but they're not borrowing that money to try and prop up Alpha too much. There's obviously some flow in that direction but not as much as you'd expect. Yeah, so in other words, rife sales of Wagoneers and Rams are not gonna buy us a better Julia. No, but I do agree on the more too much power thing. You know, any any Cadillac V thing with a manual transmission usually yeah. has too much power. Um, love them, they are fun, um, but you know, the, the, the CT5, uh, you know, with the manual transmission, um, actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the previous product, CTS, CTS-V yeah. with the manual transmission was just a handful. It was, there's so much torque um, that you have to be so careful with the manual um, that that is definitely the example of too much power. It's easier to deal with the automatic because the stability and traction control system can save your bacon because it's controlling the shifting so it knows what you're doing. But that moment that you are in charge with of the shifter, it requires so much more respect. <laughs> and with the Julia, I think they, they realized with the Julia that if they gave it any more power, it's got over 440 pound-feet of mm -hmm. torque, over 500 horsepower. If they gave it any more power, rear-wheel drive would not have been viable. Like Jaguar yeah. learned with the supercharged rear-wheel drive, like, you know, F-type R's. Like you can overwhelm two-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive performance vehicles with too much forced induction power. And yep. I think the Julia is perched right on the cusp of having too much anymore, and it would become more frustrating to control than fun to drive. <laughs> Jaguar. Yeah. Hey everyone, Brian here. This game is called Kicked to the Curb. We're gonna give Tim and Alex two items that are industry standard features or just institutions or things like that, and they're going to kick one of them to the curb. Alex, I'll start with you. 
the first statement or the first two opposing items, the perfume dispenser, something you find in a modern Mercedes-Benz, or a built-in booster seat for children in the back, a la Volvo. Oh, easy. Kick the perfume dispenser to the curb. I never understood why it was there to begin with. Only Mercedes has tried this. You know, there's really no difference between this, like, $500 canister of whatever the heck is in that thing that somehow takes up extra glove box space simultaneously and has to have a button to turn it on, and the stupid little twinkle tree that you stick to the back of your rearview mirror. The only real difference is one costs a shit ton more, and it's dumber than the little tree hanging from the side view mirror or the, the rearview mirror, which is already stupid. No one should hang a little tree from their interior. If your car doesn't smell like zero, then you've done something wrong. The car should not smell. Maybe it should smell like old leather if you're in an old leather car. Maybe new leather in a new leather car. Other than that, absolutely nothing. Should be smell-free. Speaking of a shit ton, you're saying I have to choose between a perfume dispenser and a diaper in my car? I'm going <laughs> with the perfume dispenser. I don't know about you. <laughs> I mean, I can't argue with that one. Um, all right. Tim, soft closed doors or massaging seats? I can kick massaging seats to the curb, and here's why. These things remind me of a Stephen King-inspired car with a mind of its own. I've never felt like I'm receiving a massage so much as I'm being molested by a poltergeist that lives in my seat. I can't remember one time when these things actually made me feel better as opposed to just weirded out. But give me the soft closed doors because at least with my friends in the parking lot, that's a wonderful piece of theater. And I have to, I'll add my, I'll add something there too. I've uh, specifically with the Jeep Grand Wagoneer I was sitting in, it felt like on the seat bottom, somebody was giving me this sort of ordeal, this sort of like, Oh, I see. Her fingers giving you a nice little fingertip I'm, massage. I'm, I'm, very I'm not sure what Brian is referring to there. I think he means <laughs> yeah, someone's groping his behind. But uh, yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> it was, so, I mean, we're gonna have to a, do a recall. I think. Yeah, that was if if your seat's doing that, something's wrong, Brian. I, I don't I don't, I don't think, think that like was the seat. I think someone was behind you there. <laughs> yeah, it was strange. Um, all right, Alex, a sunglass holder, a built-in sunglass holder, or an ice box in the console. Oh, two useless items. Let's see. Uh, I will kick the sunglass holder to the curb. Uh, who leaves their sunglasses in the car? Then they're hot when you get back in the car and you want to put them on. That's stupid. Just stick them somewhere else. You could stick them in the cooler. Then they would not be hot when you needed to put them on. That sounds even better. And also, where are you going to put your drinks and your most laka, iced mochaccino latte, whatever those things are with all the frou-frou on top and the straw and the thing? You can put those in there and keep them nice and chilly and cold. You can keep ice in there because, you know, if you ha need to have a Manhattan in the back, not in the front, obviously, that would be wrong. But if you're in the back and you need to have a Manhattan after a nice long day, you could do that with your ice tray in your ice chiller. So there we go. Okay, so between sunglasses and the heat and ice in the console, we've got the classic fire and ice. But here's the thing. Think about this. What is the most disgusting part of every home, office, or dorm room? It's always the fridge. And now we're going to have one in the car full time, half the time without a power source. This is a disaster waiting to happen, especially after a fishing trip with Grandpa. I said oh. it's going to happen. I warned you. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, don't put fish in there. That's just wrong. That's been sour. It's like it's it's like the work free refrigerator. Don't don't do fish at work. That's wrong. Well, no, it's don't do fish in the microwave at work. It shouldn't be in the refrigerator either. Because what are you going to do with it if you if you have it at the office? <laughs> it's a it's a combined construct. No fish. No fish at the office. Uh, the next one is headlight washers, the kind that you know pop out and give your headlights a little squirt squirt, <laughs> or night vision cameras. I would say anything that was available on a late 80s, early 90s Audi is banished from my domain. So I think I'm going to go, yeah, I'm going to go with the night vision camera. It was stupid when Cadillac did it in 2001. Now that the Germans do it, it's super cool. First of all, it makes your car tactical, which is neat because armor <laughs> is a lot more expensive. So this is a way to get by on the fly. I'm also going to say that it's great with a spy on your neighbors, and you just can't do that with a headlight washer. <laughs> Very true. Very true. All righty. Uh, Alex, the phone as key feature, the ability to use your phone as your key and, you know, get in without an actual physical key or parking sensors. And oh. No backup camera, just the sensors that beep at you. I will take the parking sensors any day. I mean, 
phone is key. Like I, we've had keys for centuries here. Like, why did we ever need to reinvent the key? It's like reinventing the wheel. It's just idiotic. You know, I could see sometimes that you know that little app thing might be handy. I, I've used that to lock and unlock my doors in the driveway. But nobody's phone is key works as it should so far until they can improve the technology. You no, know, I'll take the parking sensors every time. At least you do, you can try and eliminate some of the bumper rash in urban and suburban parking maneuvers, especially parallel parking. Very handy there. The phone is key thing is not going to help you park your car and keep it from getting scratched. All righty. Tim, heated side mirrors or remote start? Heated side mirrors exist. Yeah, I can drop that like I, I can drop that like a dollar at Dollar Tree. That is the easiest call I've ever made. First of all, I wouldn't even know if they're functioning properly. Like, how do you spot check whether your heated side mirrors are working? Um, literally anything or heated side mirrors, I drop the heated side mirrors. That's a no brainer. No, I love being a heated side mirror. I, you know, I live in an area where where you're going through the mountains and there are temperature variations, and your side view mirrors can actually fog up. It's a thing. <laughs> okay. Next, you're tell me that you have a hydrogen station nearby. Yes, we do. I mean, we live in the land of some hydrogen somewhere. Some hydrogen. Yeah. All right, uh, Alex. Mm, I'll put the built-in vacuum cleaner. So you know, Honda Vac. Mm -hmm something like that, or voice control for your infotainment system. Oh, geez. I mean, honestly, they could both die a slow <laughs> death as far as I'm concerned. The little vacuum thing. I mean, it's stupid. The vacuum thing doesn't even pick up anything. You can't even get a Cheerio out of the carpet. And the hose is so freaking long uh, that, you know, you can get around here and there, but somehow even though it is this magically extending hose thing, there are still nooks and crannies that it cannot reach somehow, you know, and you're dragging it all over the rest of your interior. That just seems stupid. And it usually takes the place of the spare tire, which I'll take there. Um, and uh, and now I've totally forgotten what the other item was, but they were both dumb. Uh, voice control for your- Voice control, yes. Who needs voice control? There's a button. You can press the button. In defense of the vacuum cleaner, if you do want to rent your car out as an Airbnb, or claim it on your taxes as a second residence, it does help to have a vacuum cleaner. I'm just <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the uh, hopefully the IRS is not watching Tim's taxes very closely here. Yeah, hopefully they're not looking too closely there. If they do, they'll see an immaculately kept Chrysler Pacifica. Not the hybrid, though, because that doesn't have the vacuum. Oh. All righty. Last one. Uh, this will be a, yeah for Tim. Uh, I'm going to say torque vectoring, and that can be any form of that system or built-in tire pressure monitor for your tires. I'm gonna kick torque vectoring to the curb for the same reason a well-designed car doesn't need a limited slip differential. If you ask Lotus, why didn't they at least come with one, they would say, because we designed it properly from the beginning. If your car is so cumbersome and unwieldy that you need torque vectoring to keep it pointed where it's intended, you've already got a big problem that you're trying to retroactively engineer with more complexity and cost. Kick torque vectoring to the curb. Alrighty, well, I think that makes that game complete for this round. Thanks for playing, guys. I'm out. Alright, so now here's the thing. Objectively, the Camaro is a great performance buy. And that is set in stone. Any LS engine coupled to a manual transmission with rear-wheel drive is going to be an absolute blast. It's in terms of its platform, it's a full car size lower than the fifth generation Camaro, which was built on basically the frame of a fairly large sedan. So this is actually a fairly agile vehicle with all the ingredients to be a great sporting vehicle. And it is truly a sports car. Today's Camaro SS with one LE package is a sports car. Um, the, the Hellcat is a muscle car. The Challenger is a muscle car. The Mustang even is a little bit lardier than the current Camaro. But the problem with the Camaro is that A, it's ugly, and B, <laughs> you feel like you're sitting in a pillbox. Yes. And there is this undercurrent of cheapness, no matter how you option it. Yeah, GM definitely has two two problems with that that vehicle. The first one is its platform. It's based on the ATS and CTS. And the way that they shrank it and poked it and prodded it to create the Camaro resulted in some wild inefficiencies. I mean, the trunk is teeny, 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 tiny. Um, practically useless. 
they decided that they wanted it to give uh, wanted it to have this very Batman Batmobile vibe. I think is what they were going for. So they they really brought the sills up high, the greenhouse down low, and it feels like you're sitting in your. It feels like you're eight years old and you're sitting in your dad's car. Like you're like a tiny kid, and nobody wants their car to make them feel small, which is awkward in that vehicle. And it's not something you get in any of the competition, but it does drive really well. Um, also, I think Chevy has the problem of the Corvette being so accessible. So, yeah. you know, Corvette is right there on top of Camaro pricing, really. And it's wacky in that way because it's a mid-engine supercar that happens to have a price tag high-end Camaro-like. So the moment you can afford a Corvette, I'm just not sure why you would get the Camaro instead. Yeah, you've got to want... As good as it might be. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go out and buy something like a ZL1, you've got to love, you've got to be in love with the idea of a mega-powered Camaro. Mm -hmm. And with the Corvette being as good as it is, the upper trim levels and engine packages, they don't make a whole lot of sense. Like, the ideal Camaro is going to be like a 1SS with a 1LE packaged in, like, the mid to high 40s. That would be, like, the ideal Camaro SS these days. What you say about feeling like you're in a pillbox, it's two things. First, it's the height of the still, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like when you're in a Miata, you know, your arm is right here with the window down. When you're riding with the window down in the Camaro, your arm is like here. And if your arm is even with your eyesight, that's too high a sill. Like you're sitting in a bathtub at that point. Yes. This was a problem that they had with the fifth generation Camaro. They knew it felt like you were sitting in some sort of a foxhole. They knew the sill was too high. And yet they went with a full clean sheet redesign on a new platform, and it's the same problem every yeah. time. I think there are devotees of that style is the problem. And I'm guessing that a large number of them are sitting inside GM's headquarters designing Camaros because um, they seem to really love it. Um, interior parts quality is something that Camaro, I mean, historically, let's be honest, Camaro and Mustang have long had a problem with interior parts quality and any vehicle would I would say that spans the price range of Camaro and Mustang ultimately will have this problem with interior parts quality with with very few exceptions. Oddly enough, most of those exceptions happen at Stellantis, the you know the other company that finally figured it out. But you know you you design a car to be profitable at twenty thousand dollars, the parts and plastics are not going to feel snazzy at sixty thousand dollars or at seventy thousand dollars where some of these vehicles can end up. And that's that's an eternal problem. And the only answer to that is to swap out the parts, which is something they don't like to do because it's expensive. But that is the the twist that we see not in the direct competitor and challenger and charger. But for instance, we do see like in the Jeep lineup. Um, we also see that in like some Hyundai and Kia vehicles, they will do this where the base model has rubbery dashboards, hard plastic doors, etc. And the top end model is stitched leather all the way from top to bottom. So that helps that. So even though the buttons and switches uh, and the outside looks the same on the inside, you didn't pay for, you know, a $70,000 car with a, you know, Kia Nero interior. Uh, you got something that was more appropriate for the price tag. And I hope that's something that GM can learn from because the, the new pickup trucks are looking definitely good. Uh, whether they will learn and apply that lesson to their less expensive vehicles, I don't know. I don't think they will because where the Camaro is in its cycle right now is roughly where the old F-Body was in like the year 2000. Mm -hmm. It had one or two years left to run before being discontinued with no replacement planned. And GM was just done investing in that platform. Like the idea that they're going to go in and do anything to the Camaro other than maybe some trim oh, yeah. packages. Maybe, maybe there will be like a send-off Z28 it won't be as specialized as the last one, but it might be like, you know, the equivalent of a super 1LE package on the ZL1. Uh, but you're yeah. not going to see anything fundamentally new in like a 1SS or a 2SS interior. Um, I would say the best thing about this Camaro is it's basically like getting the Cadillac. I mean, it's like the old ATS or the new CT4 with a thumping LS instead of a wheezy six-cylinder engine. Like, mm -hmm. it's a great driving experience. It's a vehicle that yeah. doesn't exist in the Cadillac lineup. You've just got to be able to look straight ahead and ignore anything to the sides, to the rear, or down. Yes. You know, I haven't heard of any rumors about the Camaro getting replaced. Is Does, does it look like it's going to die? 
I think so because there, there are two things that are that are kicking around. One is this notion that the Camaro is going to die in 2024, and that's going to be the end of it. Uh, the other thing is that there's something coming. I mean, we've all seen like the silhouettes under sheets of like the coming GM electric vehicles, and presumably all mm. of them have some real project number and identity. And there is something in, if you go back and you look at those teasers, there is something that fits the profile of a Camaro, whether it's a Camaro or whether they're going to do something like they did with the Hummer and just decide that they're going to use their existing brands as an umbrella to bring back older stuff. Like we could see a new GTO, we could see a new Firebird. There's so many old GM models, yeah. legendary status. Uh, that, you know, belong to dead brands. Those could be coming back as, who knows, the Chevy Firebird or, you know, the yeah. GMC GTO. I An electric Camaro would be intriguing. I, I would I would love to see that. But I'm I'm concerned about Ultium, the Ultium platform and its high curb weight. It is crazy, yeah. crazy heavy in everything. So I, I would be... I would be really intrigued to see an electric Camaro, but I would also be concerned it would weigh 7,000 pounds. There is something coming. And I, I mean, we've seen what a Lyric looks like. We've seen about the size mm -hmm. and the weight of the Cadillac Lyric. Um, so you don't need a Hummer-sized vehicle with Ultium. I don't know if you can get something acceptably close to a Camaro in size or weight. I think people yeah. are a little bit more comfortable with the idea of a muscle car being kind of big and heavy. Certainly no one's ever dropped their you know their order or their deposit on a challenger because the thing's too you know lardy or fat because it's both of those things and it right. still sells quite well um, I, think, I think i think we could get close in weight like uh as long as it's not an ultium fat platform vehicle lyric in rear wheel drive is apparently just under six thousand pounds yeah I mean, um, I so see... significantly heavier than ionic 5. yeah i could see the camaro coming back in a form somewhat like the fifth generation Camaro, where it's based on a fairly large midsize mm -hmm. sedan. Uh, I think maybe the idea of a compact sedan based Camaro is going to be dead. And it might be that a 5,200 pound uh, traditional muscle car that's got boulevard ride, big time straight line power, admittedly a lot of weight, but also interior volume to match. Uh, that could be an effective formula, especially given that, I mean, Jesus Christ, the Challenger, it's Mercedes yes. from the 90s and early 2000s, and mm -hmm. it still sells well. Because uh, no it's comfortable. It's big inside, it's comfortable, and it has crazy engines in it. <laughs> but, but like you also said, Stellantis occasionally gets it right. When you mm -hmm. sit in the upper trim Challengers, they feel reasonably premium. Yeah, they're not bad. I mean, it, it's getting a little old here and there, but, you know, it's uh, it has crazy engines, and that, that makes up for a lot. That's... Half half the reason to buy a Charger or a Challenger is simply because of the engine. Would you like a 5.7, a 6.2, a 6.4? Would you like a supercharger or not? You know, it's like <laughs> something for everybody. I mean, that is that is kind of the wacky construct is they're the only one with three different V8 engines just jammed under the hood for no particular reason. Yeah. So the, sh the short answer here is, guys, if you want a small block Camaro that can dance, now is the time to buy because anything that comes later is going to be heavier, likely electric, and very different from the sixth generation mm -hmm. Camaro. Yeah. Okay. The two-door Wrangler Rubicon. This is the most narrowly focused vehicle I think you can buy in the truck <laughs> market. This has one task and only one task, and it is to park out in front of Starbucks on Rodeo Drive and look absolutely butch. It is the most... <laughs> street performance vehicle you can buy it will tip over like a weeble and wobble accordingly in theory it has off-road performance that no one will use this is the ultimate poser mobile i would say you know possibly uh because i'm sure there are a reasonable number of them that that end up never going off-road um but intriguingly sales of the two-door model has been incredibly consistent over the last 20 or so years so the massive explosion in wrangler sales is the four-door model uh, which they never thought they should ever build and now it's you know 200 something thousand units a year in the four-door model but the the one door or sorry two-door model has has now dropped down to less than five percent of total sales which is why you don't get any of the options on it that you get in the the four-door model like the diesel the the uh the you know, different uh, different tops and things like that that you can get in the four-door model. There isn't a corollary for all of those bits and bobs on the two-door model because it's it's such a tiny fraction of Wrangler sales that, you know, a diesel take rate would end up being like 0.5% of the entire, the entire fleet sales number there. 
Um, so it is it is an interesting thing that they have actually kept it because, of course, the four-door Wrangler model sales depend on the existence of this two-door model and its offered promise that they're not going to use, but it's based on that. It's sort of like a Buick needing to live on in America because the average Buick buyer is rich and living in China and they yes. buy their Buick based on its Americanness. And if it didn't exist in America, then it would just be a Chinese Buick, which it is anyway. <laughs> or a German Buick in the case of the what it was at the Regal wagon still based built out of Germany. Mm -hmm. um, so here's the thing. I apologize to anyone who's driving their two door Wrangler off road. Cause I know a lot of, uh, a lot of trail rats actually prefer the two-door for its off-road prowess maneuverability. That's a real thing. But I'm also a child of the 90s, which means I remember the Jeep Wrangler from Clueless, and that is partly where <laughs> my Rodeo Drive scenario comes from. By the way, Stellantis, if you want to redeem yourself and create the absolute wildest Jeep that's ever existed, manual transmission, two-door, 392 V8, a barely controllable hooligan machine, that would be the greatest uh sunset ever. There, uh, there are a few dealers here and there that will do a two-door uh, 392 conversion for you. So, uh, you know, it, it does not exist from the factory, uh, but there are dealers that will do the conversion with a brand, brand spanking new car for you if you are so inclined and uh, have pockets deep enough. Yeah, but at that point, you may as well just do an LS swap in like a TJ or something. Ah, but all all of the all the 392 badging and everything would work right on your Wrangler, so you just stick it right on. And that, that's true. You know, there is there is the that whole factory thing. finished look. That reminds me of when they decided to redesign the exterior of the Hellcat with more badges because they found out that in the first production year, people were actually putting more badges on, so everyone knew they had the Hellcat. Hey, it's a thing. Okay. <laughs> so. Maybe I'm being a bit brutal on the Wrangler Rubicon two-door, but the next car is objectively, it's probably the worst car, objectively, that you can buy in the United States. It's the Karma GS6. Once upon a time, it was called the Fisker Karma. I owned that vehicle for three weeks. That was the worst car ever made. This is merely the worst car you can buy today. Oh, my. Why did you own a Karma? Because I got it for literally half the retail price still on MSO. I bought the last one for sale in the U.S. in 2015. Wow. I sold it in three weeks for almost exactly. I, I Seriously, I paid like $55,000 for this thing. And I sold it for the same amount three weeks later. That is like a brush with financial death. The likes <laughs> of I hope never to repeat. But this one is improved in many ways over mine. But consider this simple fact. It's 199 inches long. It has a 124-inch wheelbase, which says full-size car to me. But it's EPA classified as a subcompact because if you have an interior volume of 85 to 99 cubic feet, you are a subcompact. It's 87 cubic feet. And the scary part is when you fall below 85, the EPA classes you as a mini-compact. And it's Yeah, it is, uh, it is very relaxed in its driving position. <laughs> very low roof line. Yes. It has a six cubic foot trunk with mm -hmm. a 124 inch wheelbase. It is as compromised as any vehicle ever made. And I forgive it because it is gorgeous. It's not as gorgeous as the Fisker, the hockey puck, mouth guard, whatever you want to call it. The redesign of the front was not successful, but I forgive that because the rest of it is still so good. And it does have a decent EV range for a plug-in hybrid. 50 to 60 real world miles is actually not bad. Now it's going to be a 26 yeah. mile per gallon conventional car once you're done with the battery, but that's not bad as plug-ins go. It's mm -hmm. not as likely to burn to the ground as the original, which is good, nor are the windows likely to get stuck down, which is also good. And for that matter, it has an infotainment system that actually works better than a sticker decal. You, like in the old one, you could put a sticker of like a computer screen on the console and it would work just as well. You would not know the difference. This one actually works decently. Have they improved it? Yes. It drives better. It runs better. It's more reliable. And quite frankly, they pulled 400 pounds out of the car, which is impressive. But fundamentally, you are still talking about a four-door car that's basically a two-seater and mm -hmm. profoundly weird. Yeah, but, you know, there'll be a tiny market for it. It's never going to be a volume seller. But the original Karma wasn't designed to be a volume seller either. No, but oddly, I think they probably sold more of the original Karma in the one year it was on the market than, than Karma has sold of the GS6 since when it reappears the Rivero in like 2017. If they're selling yeah. like 200 a year, 
they made, I want to say, 2,700, 2,800 of the original Fisker Karma. That's probably more than every Rivero, Rivero GT, and GS6 in existence. It is painfully beautiful to look at, and it may be that once it stops running, it will be the ultimate living room sculpture, but there is no more compromised car available, and yet, perversely, I still want it. I mean, it does look good. I'm just digging through the pictures here. You know, it has a good-looking style to it, but yeah, it is... It's very sleek and slinky, you know. It's uh, I'm I'm intrigued to see why they bothered. Even it is it, it does appear to sell better than an NSX. Well, I mean that's a you race. So inclined. <laughs> that's a race that the that the GS6 could actually win. A race to the sales bottom with the NSX. Uh, that that said, the GS6 lives on, and the company behind it, at least in theory, has Wan Sheng money behind it. Wan Sheng is mm -hmm. a big component maker in China. That again, in theory, is financing the research and development at Karma. I say in theory because two yeah. years ago there was a rumor that they were actually going to shutter the whole thing. So I don't know how generous its corporate parent really is. That's the question. Now, how much are they willing yeah. to spend? At least for now, they seem to be on better footing than when they were Fisker, but that's not saying much. A lot is going to hinge on how well their subsequent models sell. They're never going to sell a lot of the GS6. They seem happy selling 200, 250 of them a year. I would happily drive the thing around until it fizzled out. Um, but this is like the ultimate lease-only vehicle. <laughs> if you could even lease it. Okay, EVs that we may never be able to buy. At least the GS6 is real. The Alpha 5 from DeLorean may or may not be. Alex, what do you think? You're a child of the 80s. Is this the dream car made good or just more paper planes? I I mean, is it going to go bankrupt in Ireland again with some sort of funky tax dodge and, you know, whatever other schemes he had going on there? Uh, I don't know. But uh, I would not be surprised if it featured in a Back to the Future reboot. Seems like it would belong, you know, Marty McFly, you know, resurrected somehow. The the the, the animated course of Marty McFly comes comes back. Um I'm not I'm not clear. It does look good. Um you know, good looking, good looking cars that are incredibly expensive and smell and sell sell in tiny numbers, uh really aren't my jam, but uh but it's intriguing. I mean, here's the thing. I give them a lot of credit for not making it a pure retro play. If this had been designed between like 2000 and 2008 during like Jay May's reign of terror <laughs> over international auto design, it would have been a straight up retro play. It would have looked exactly like the old one with closer seams, rounded off edges. Yeah. It would have been intellectually bankrupt, like to the point where you could almost mod out an old DeLorean to look like the new one. This is a sedan it has back seats it has one all-encompassing gullwing door on each side but yep. aside from the louvers on the back and the gullwing doors it doesn't pay slavish homage to the past they did design a new car and i give them credit for that yeah i mean it's uh it's kind of like you know volkswagen beetle reimagined it's you know more or less beetle shaped but that's about it <laughs> and I'll give them this too. I mean, the stats, at least as of 2022, are competitive. Sub three seconds, zero to 60 run, 300 miles. Though, if they are running a 100 kilowatt hour battery and they're only getting 300 miles, that's starting to seem a little bit behind the power curve. But let's be totally honest. The chance that this ever makes it to production is vanishingly small. And I'm a fan of the dreamers, the little guy, uh, you know, the starry-eyed folks who have an idea and you know, sacrifice to make it happen. And although the original DMC company ended badly, the folks behind this have been running a pretty stable and successful DeLorean restoration, modding, and service operation for a long time now. So yeah. I'm going to give them credit for that. Um, the money, this... it's very expensive. It's like, where is this all of this money going to come from, though? To Going from parts to this, that's a big leap. An SPAC public offering for this as an EV automaker in 2021 would have been red hot. But mm -hmm. that window has closed. You can no longer get blank checks from capital markets and investors for offering, you know, a flight of fancy EV concept. Mm -hmm. We've seen too many Faradays. We've seen too many canoes. We've seen too many Nicolas. Uh, this story yep. does not always end well. 
And look, I would and we've seen to... companies actually shipping product where stock yeah. is going nowhere and is not lighting the not lighting the world on fire like Rivian, who is currently delivering product. They seem to be, you know, they're burning cash, obviously, but there's enough cash to make a go of this thing. Uh, and it's actually shipping. I have a VIN number, theoretically. Um, and they're not rewarded at all for that in the same way that Tesla was sim at the same time in their their development back in 2013, 2012. Yeah, I think that the best case scenario here is that they get a little bit of money from investors to hire, I don't know, like Valmet Automotive or Foxconn <laughs> or, or Magna to make it on a limited basis. I think this only survives, frankly, if they can find some sort of donor platform, someone who's already designed an EV platform, probably, frankly, a Chinese automaker who's willing yeah. to license that and, and preferably license it and build it for them. Yeah, that's probably the best bet. I'm going to be interested to see if there are any any more tie-ups and takeovers in, in the EV space. There's so many tiny little EV startups trying to crop up here and there that there has to be some consolidation. Um, you know, Rivian uh, was offering their platform to Ford for a while. Obviously, there's also the uh, Amazon van theoretically built on this, this same sort of uh, EV skateboard-like platform. Um, I mean, that would be a ripe one for for investment is, you know, Rivian could need the extra cash here. Here's a skateboard, stick your widget on top and roll away. Yeah, I think realistically, it's not going to be economic, economically consequential for any donor of a platform. Like you look at all of the mid like the, the little tiny British automakers during the 2000s that used some version of the Ford modular V8 from the Mustang. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you Ford made nothing on all of those donations. I think it would be interesting, maybe as a publicity stunt for one of these yeah. EV manufacturers to hitch up with the DeLorean folks and say, look what's possible with our technology and manufacturing. It would be more of a halo vehicle for an EV manufacturer that's donating the platform than for the DeLorean company itself. Yeah, most of those engine tie-ups, they're, they're viewed by the, by the manufacturer as just, you know, crate engine like business you know we're selling crate engines anyway you want to license the engine yeah you you do you you know we'll sell you a few thousand it's fine um there's not a huge amount of money to be made there it's more advantageous for the company buying them obviously because they know that they have something that is functional that spare parts exist and that it, it more importantly it's emissions tested and verified uh, in those particular countries for something which to be honest you know, for an EV platform could also be somewhat beneficial and it could help, you know, a car company that has a, an EV platform that's underutilized, help it amortize it over longer periods of time, et cetera. Um, it also depends on how much the company is willing to pay for those parts. Yeah. Well, think about this. If you're like, let's say you want to be, let's say you're VinFast or your company that wants to be VinFast and you want to launch into the U.S. market, you've got more or less an underpinning that would work with this DeLorean. Mm -hmm. It might help you to launch into the U.S. market in your showrooms, having whatever compact crossover EV thing you're going to sell, because that's exactly what you're going to sell. And then next to that, on the same platform, the DeLorean Alpha 5. That, to mm -hmm. me, seems like it would be worth someone's time if they've already got a presence overseas, they have a real cash supply, investors with sufficient liquidity, and a desire to have a prestige product that will get people to look at an otherwise anonymous name from overseas selling an untested car in the United States. That's the only way this DeLorean thing succeeds. Someone yeah, comes that would along be an intriguing model. One thing we don't know, what exactly is the VinFast EV based on? That is an interesting question that nobody has had a good answer to because up till now, they, they claim it's their own, mind you, by the way. Uh, but I really wonder if that's true because it seems to have come out of nowhere awfully fast. And up till this point, everything VinFast has done has been a BMW or a GM. So I really wonder if it's truly based on some other EV platform that's licensed or if they really did design their own dedicated EV platform. I mean, I would be genuinely shocked if their first ever attempt at building their own platform is built in the United States and passes federal crash standards. Like that is a daunting task. They will not have to worry about emissions, but if you're, the first vehicle you've ever designed yourself has to go up against European and American crash testing to get certified, that is, I mean, that that's bold, but that's also risky. Like that's an awfully yeah. 
ambitious attempt at your first vehicle. A lot of these guys cut, you know, if you, if you go over to China, a lot of the automakers there cut their teeth dealing with various uh, minimal crash standards required of micro cars and city mm -hmm. cars, Chinese market vehicles. Um, but I guess that's probably a, that's probably a topic for another day. It would be cool if DeLorean could hook up with something like a VinFast, but I think VinFast probably deserves a segment of its own in a future episode. Alex, yeah. if people want to find you, where can they find Alex Dykes online and off? Yeah, they can find us at uh, Alex on Autos, EV Buyer's Guide, the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast YouTube channel. So if you haven't already subscribed to that one and you want to see what we're talking about in person, you can head over to that. You can also find us at uh, Instagram, Twitter, all those other social places. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, AlexOnAutos.com as well for the home of written content that you may want to read when you can't watch or listen. That's time out, Tim out, Alex out. Thanks for logging on. See you later. <laughs>